Welcome to The Obsession Digression. A podcast that explores all of the cultural things we're obsessed with. I'm Sam Bernarczyk. And I'm Katie Walker. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) We are two Uh, humans. It's awesome. Oh no, what was that? I... (laughs) So I told you we were trying to figure out what time to record this morning, and I said I can record anytime after I go get a breakfast sandwich. Yeah. And so I walked just down to the corner to get this like breakfast sandwich on a bagel. It's like egg, you know, it's very California. So some like avocado, tomato, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I walked it back, and I was like, oh, I'll just like eat it at my desk as I'm getting together all my notes for this episode. I opened it up, and like egg yolk spilled out of the bag. Oh no. Like, more than should be in one egg. Like, I'm just curious where it all came from. Like, Hmm. onto the desk and onto my floor. It was really disgusting. Oh, that's like the worst. I know. It wasn't a good start. And then I went to start eating it, and they didn't cut the bagel in half. And I've never thought about this before, (laughs) but it's, like, much more difficult to eat a bagel sandwich when it's not cut in half. Oh, yeah, because then, like, you've got full, full on hand investment and, like, things are sliding out of the side. And it looks like there's no setting it down until you're done. Yeah, like, as opposed to a hot dog bun, a bagel is not made to, like, hold things. You know what I mean? So That's true. They should they should scoop. I guess you would get ripped off with the amount of bagel you get. But, like, I have seen places that kind of scoop out the bread of the bagel no, a little bit. No, I will never yeah. have my bagel scooped. <laughs> okay. I see people do that. That's big in New York, too. Like, um... You'll see like a whole line of people going into the office and they want a bagel, but then they shouldn't have a bagel. So they're like, can you scoop out everything but like the crust? (laughs) (laughs) They're on like the new like, uh, what is it? Keto diet or keto diet? I don't know how you pronounce it. Mm, Um, Have you heard of this diet? It's a fad diet, but it's basically like you are trying to put your body in a state where like you don't eat carbs basically so it's kind of like the atkins but like you're trying to put your body in a state where the energy that you run off of is not sugar it's not glucose but it's fat and so you just eat like red meat and cheese and bacon and like like all the like fatty foods and it apparently like shocks your body into turn like to turning it into an alternative fuel source and then it eats up your fat yeah, That's so apparently This American what Life happens. did like an episode a few years ago that was exploring the way, the reason why when people fast, they tend to have religious experiences. And it's mm-hmm. because you are switching after, like, first you suffer for a while. Because <laughs> yeah. fasting is really painful and that transition's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But your body does the same thing because you're not taking in sugar. You might be having like a little chicken broth, but that's it when you're fasting. Um, it turns to its own like power supply and that's turning fat into energy. And so you mm-hmm. are like, trans- yeah, keto- ketogens or ketogenesis or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, it changes, like it makes you more positive. It gives you more energy and people find, because they're usually fasting for spiritual religion or spiritual like reasons, they think that, I mean, and maybe they are, who am I to say? But yeah. they, they get this sort of chemical encouragement to feel reaffirmed in <laughs> their ah, spiritual pursuits. Okay. I feel like of all the diets in the world, that would not be the most difficult for me. Because, like, I gave up pasta for Lent, and yeah. it sucked for a while, but, like, I was I was, I was, was okay, you know? Like, I was fine. And, like, all I'd have to do was just, like, not eat bread, and then everything else 
in that diet is like what I eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I feel fatty the same foods, way. bring it on. Um, like I don't eat a lot of carbs, and I definitely I'm not I, like I always go for more like savory things than sweet things. So giving up desserts isn't that difficult. Yeah, I think yeah I don't like have that much. I mean I do have a sweet tooth, but it's only when it's around. You know, like actually this is so bad. The we <laughs> bought like a giant cake for my graduation party. And what was we had, like, oh, it was screen printed to where it had me, Lady McPug, and Bargansney <laughs> all wearing graduation robes. And it was, like, absolutely photoshopped because, uh, like, that we made that photo, like, weeks ahead of gra- actual graduation. So it was, like, I think it was, like, some, like, Michigan grad students that we, like, stole this photo from and put dog heads on human bodies and (laughs) anyway so then we had it on our cake and it was so weird because like at the party um there were you know there were like quite a few people there and everyone like wanted some cake but no one wanted to like eat like any faces or like the dog's heads or something so we get home and we have like a much smaller version of the cake but it's like (laughs) just like the dog's heads and so ryan was like i really want some cake but i don't want to eat lady mcpug <laughs> i was like <laughs> um so i forced him to do it and it was this I know, weird like, like what's moment. your end game otherwise yeah <laughs> to just let but that like, cake like slowly ossify in the freezer <laughs> yeah but it's been sitting around for like you know for a week and so it's been like this huge temptation to just be like oh Right before bed, I just I'm just gonna have some of this cake because oh it is God. delicious yeah. and um, yeah. So like I think though it's been a week. I'm gonna I think I'm gonna pull the cord today. I think I'm gonna say we have to throw away the rest of that cake. How much more is left? <laughs> I mean, it's a huge cake, so there's still like probably like ten like decent oh, <laughs> size pieces left. You know, like it okay, was huge. <laughs> yeah, we got the biggest size cake you could get at Harris Teeter, so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> speaking of your graduation party. Yeah. You recorded a week and a half ago, at which point I thought that your graduation party was two days later. Yeah. And you laughed <laughs> Just... at me and said, no, it is not for weeks. <laughs> and then four <laughs> days later, I, <laughs> I check, like, Instagram, and I see all these pictures from your graduation. Oh. And if ever there was a time for that, like, Robert Williams Jumanji meme. <laughs> It was then. Because I was Wait. so disoriented. Because I thought you said it was weeks later. And then it was just a couple of days later. Well, okay. But in my head, that if it was weeks later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let me explain. Um, we, were trying, we were trying to ensure that you did not come to my party. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Wait, wait, let me um, back up. Let me back up. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know why I said that. I think that like... So part of it was that I was actually nervous about the hooding ceremony and about, like, all the family coming into town and corralling everybody, you know, and, like, getting everybody, like, where they needed to be at certain times. Um, And so, like, in – like, I personally was just, like, deferring thinking about it (laughs) in certain ways. Uh, So, like, I mean, the day before everyone got here, like, Ryan is, like, stressing out, like – rushing all over the house and I was like playing video games and he's like what are you doing <laughs> and I was like oh yeah I forgot like you know right. just like I have been uh, suppressing this right. um 
So, yeah, I don't know why I said that because it was, well, it was last weekend. So, yeah, it was, it was two, uh, roughly two weeks ago, like in terms of when we talked. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot though. There was a lot happening <laughs> this whole weekend thing because it was, so it was like my, my brother and father drove here from Texas. Uh, Ryan's parents drove here, but separately. And my Ooh. mother and my grandmother flew in. That's a long and, drive to like do separately. Yeah. Well, yeah. And my father had never been here before. He'd never been to North Carolina. Oh. And so like he didn't know, you know, like bless his heart, he didn't know like like when you say, Oh yeah, it's an eighteen hour drive in your head you're like, Oh, that's not bad. Like that's that's doable. No, I would but never then, like, say that in my mind. <laughs> When you are physically in a vehicle for 18 hours, that's, it's a lot. It's, yeah. it's rough on your body. Um, it is. It really is. Like I would drive from North Carolina to New Jersey and that was like six and a half hours. And by the end, like my back was killing me, you know, mm -hmm. like it wasn't just that I was restless and bored. Like you start to feel it when you're sitting in the same position for that long. Yeah. No, this one time, this is like a crazy story. Well, it's not that crazy, but, um, Basically, I was really sick, and I ended up in the emergency room. This was, like, a few years ago. And, um, like, I was also, like, having anxiety and all this stuff. And, anyway, so I was in there for, like, just normal being sick issues. And the uh, the ER doctor was like, well, have you been on any long road trips recently? And I was like, well, yeah, mm -hmm. we went to Texas, like, last week. And he was like, it could be a blood clot. And then what? I was like, no, yeah, because apparently if you, you know, like you sit still in a car for a long time, um, it induces, you know, like, you know, like you're just, you're stuck, your body can't move. So it does create a much more, a higher likelihood for blood clots. So then, then it was like, I had to do all of these tests. Like I had to have like an EKG and like all the like heart attack tests basically. Oh my God. Yeah, to then determine that, like, no, I did not have a blood clot. I was just having a panic attack. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, so that is that is a real thing. Um, truck drivers, like, this is kind of why they, um, you know, have a lot of heart issues. It's not because they're unhealthy. It's because it's unhealthy to sit around, you know, for 20-hour stretches or whatever. So, anyways, fun fact. <laughs> like, also, don't ever tell. Like, <laughs> indigestion or like chest pain, I'm always like, oh my God, it's a heart attack. I know. And my first thought is never like fear that I'm having a heart attack. It's like embarrassment that I'm having one so young. <laughs> <laughs> like, I cannot get my priorities straight. Because, you well, know, what I mean, is like, since I was a little kid, my grandfather had a heart attack at 52, and everyone was like, oh, oh. my gosh, so young. He was fine. He came, he had two, and he came back from both of them. But okay. um, they were like, oh, and way too young to be having a heart attack. <laughs> so I would just extrapolate from there. Like, yeah. well, 52 is too young. <laughs> what happens when you're student. like... 27 yeah. <laughs> yeah no i know that that fear is real because i like i don't know i suffer from heartburn and i have like my whole from life what? from heartburn like oh like i have I to take heartworm oh, <laughs> like, oh my well God. <laughs> that's a different issue that's that's a later talk no <laughs> um but yeah so the fear of something actually like wrong is so real because like, I don't know, I feel like so many of our, our 
illnesses, you're like, okay, like I've broken a leg. <laughs> there are steps mm-hmm. to take, but like you can't see your blood vessels. You can't see like your heart lurking within pumping you. oxygen. Like that's so insane to me that we just like live just so unaware of how we even survive i don't know it's i know i think about this it's getting strange but so now that i have like sweet benefits i'm all about preventative medicine um and so i went and got like the most comprehensive physical you can get where i got a bunch of like blood panels and a checkup and a physical and all of that but i also knew like going in that day i was like i could cancel this because if it turns out i have something that's going to kill me like maybe i just don't want to (laughs) know yeah that's true oh man so like that's really dark you should probably just go find out and be an adult about it (laughs) like maybe don't run away from you know like the specter of a problem (laughs) not to like introduce our our topic too early but like just just as a way to connect it very briefly and then we can go back to talking about Mm -hmm. ourselves um (laughs) but for (laughs) research for this episode (laughs) um I, so I, you know, so we're talking about the Princess Bride today, and I, you know, obviously it has Andre the Giant in it, and so I watched the HBO documentary, Andre the Giant, which is fabulous, and of course, like, so sad, so sad, because that was, I mean, that was his big thing, is like, he knew that he couldn't, like, that he was going to live a shorter lifespan than others, and he just, he wouldn't go to the doctor, he didn't want to know, you know, he didn't want to have, like, the kind of he didn't want to confront the the painful truth that like he might not live past forty or or whatever, right? But, but what was so um, sad about that too, though, is I didn't I didn't know this, but gigantism I think was the phrase they used. It's not reversible, but you can stunt it, and so you can yeah. um, you can prolong your life even if you have it. And they just didn't know that when he was younger, and so they didn't take the right. steps. And then when by the time he was offered that possibility, his fame was so directly tied to his being a giant that he was like, well, no, if I do this, my career's over. And then what's the point of living? Yeah. And that's just, yeah. that's dark, man. It's, and then when yeah. And it's like how around, alone he was, too. Yeah. That's what, oh, man, like this guy, you know, like he could never, well, he could never be alone in public. Like he could never be anonymous, but also just like. The people around him were like, you know, wrestling promoters and, you know, like other wrestlers. Like he didn't, despite like however many like famous people like Hulk Hogan comes in and says like, oh yeah, he was, he was a great friend. Like you still got the sense that like this guy was lonely. I don't want to see Hulk Hogan on my screen. Like I'm not, I'm like not over like his alliance, unholy alliance with Peter Thiel. Like, it was, like, pissing me off every time, like, we had to listen to him talk with sentimental music playing in the background. <laughs> yeah. I like, I know what you did. And, you know, like, people are not taking to heart how big a deal it was because it was only Gawker. But what you did set a really, really terrible precedent for, like, the amount of power we can exert over news outlets. Yeah, that is, that's very true. Yeah, so no, I you, mean. Hulk Hogan. Fuck you. And your, <laughs> your, your muscles and your, your stupid Brother. tan. um also i have to say too i was very this is so silly but like i was so happy when we found out in the documentary that he was really popular with women because i was like yeah (laughs) yeah it could have gone the other way that would make me so sad exactly that made me so happy for him (laughs) yeah that's yeah agreed he was popular with the ladies 
to your point too it'll be interesting to think about like how the alcoholism surrounding his life um i don't know like is echoed in some ways about with the thread of like alcoholism in the novel and in the movie oh yeah that's a good point i did i did not make that connection but we're gonna talk about this today about how we're gonna talk about it <laughs> how much how many how many times Inigo like just gets shit based and <laughs> uh, gets on that brandy yo so it should be good a lot of of, uh, childhood trauma in this book (laughs) Um, okay but before we move on okay oh sorry go ahead before we move on from andre the giant the other thing that blew my mind is i didn't understand that okay so if you and i guess like it was silly of me to think that these were like would work the same way but if you are born a little person you're just smaller from infancy Whereas if you have gigantism, like it, the, the documentary implied that like those symptoms don't necessarily manifest until like your teenage years. So you right. have all your initial like growing as an adolescent and you seem just like your height is going to be exactly the height of everyone around you. And they said it wasn't until he was like 17. Like that's right, so is, late in my mind. It's and to adjust to that, right? To, like, I know. Grow up, you know, you're already so awkward size. in your body when you're just like a, a standard teenager. Yeah. And then, like, to have to be like, oh, this is happening. And, you know, like you said, like, they didn't quite know what it was. And, like, he just, he kept growing and kept growing. And, um, like, he used to be really thin, too. But then, like, Mm -hmm. his organs got bigger. He needed more fuel. And, yeah. I think some of that was the alcoholism, too. Yeah. That's, that's, he's looking a little more like bloated. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. So, oh, man. So, highly recommend. Andre the Giant HBO documentary. Yeah. Um, check it out. Run, don't walk, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, um, I can't believe I'm following up on a promise I made on this podcast because that never happens. But Do you I have found a... my first phrase. Oh, so... yay. I'm so excited. <laughs> this made me laugh so hard. I was listening. Do you know um, the Read podcast? No. It's so funny. It's just uh, two friends who just talk about like essentially just like pop culture and stuff like that. And people write in with questions and they give them life advice, blah, blah, blah. They were talking about apparently this like 15 year old YouTube star who is this like young white rapper who is, I guess you, I have no idea who this is. I feel like ugh, my cultural attunement is like diminishing with like great <laughs> speed. So I know yeah, apologies. If anyone old. listening is probably like shouting the name of this person. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> But apparently she know. came for, like, um, Iggy Azalea, who is, of course, another famous, like, white rapper-ish, I guess. Mm-hmm. And one of the hosts was like, doesn't she know? She goes, Iggy is <laughs> coming for Iggy Azalea. She walked so you could run. <laughs> what? And I was like, that's so good. She walked so you could run. She goes, she, she, she paved the way for mediocre white rappers. <laughs> Okay, so if she did it mediocre, so, so that Iggy Azalea, then... as a mediocre, she as since she was the first oh. mediocre white rapper, she then paved the way. She walked so you could run. She walked so you could run, but like that's like that's throwing shade at at Iggy, right? I mean, kind of at everyone involved, yeah. Okay, but like, but it but was the, more like saying like this successors. this young this young woman should not be like making fun of or attacking this <laughs> other woman because oh. she's essentially her forebear. I got it. Okay, okay. Sorry. It took me a while, Sam. I'm a little slow on the uptake today. So. That's all right. I probably could have said it better. Are we going <laughs> to try again? Good. No. 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 <laughs> We're too lazy for that shit. 
Yeah. Um, also, speaking of which, I think we've gotten so far away from this now, but I kind of think I said Robert Williams before instead of Robin Williams. Like, I just want to make sure everyone knows. Like, I do understand his name is Robin Williams. <laughs> <laughs> he lived Robert in San Francisco. Robert Williams, his less known yeah. He's like the knockoff comedian yeah. of, of famous lesser movies like Jumanju and Mrs. Tr- Trustwater. <laughs> nah, no, nah, no. Oh, uh, Robert. Robert. <laughs> but you were going to say something before you said before we get uh, too far away. Oh, yeah. I just want to talk about like hooding for a second. Oh yeah, the good kind, not the, um, <laughs> not, the not racist like the kind. white supremacy kind. <laughs> yeah, not that. Yeah, but um, so yeah, I wanted to just relate what happened to me this past weekend, which was that not only did I technically graduate and there were you know folks in town and all that biz and a party, but also I underwent this very formal ceremony mm-hmm. called being hooded or the hooding ceremony. Um, which, so basically everyone who earns a a doctorate in anything gets to be hooded. And so like, there were like, you know, there were like MDs there and I was like, what are you motherfuckers doing here? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like throwing shade at like like, real doctors. (laughs) Yeah. I was like. This is for for PhDs, but no, every everyone can be if you earn a doctorate in anything, um, you can be hooded. Okay. Um, so, anyways, Wait, did um, you get any lawyers? Were there like JDs? Or is no, there, yeah, there's a law school in UNC. There um, is JDs are not hooded though, that because they're yeah they're not hooded, or the, oh. if they are, it's a different thing. But it's they were not at our ceremony. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder what I the logic know. is for that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, I yeah, I have no idea. But it was just like it was anybody like in the arts and sciences or nursing or medicine or stuff like that. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. But okay. So, anyways, that basically what you do is you pay a shit ton of money for these really hideous robes. Um, so mine are like light blue and like very poofy and like just ridiculous. But then you have like this like hood thing that drapes on the back, but you are not allowed to have it on before the ceremony. Right. So you just carry it with you like this weird shawl. Like you just start like walking around as like basically like like you're a waiter, like you're carrying your hood over your arm as you would like a fancy, you know, napkin or something. Um, <laughs> you're just like the the fanciest maitre d' ever. Yeah, exactly. So, OK, so we get to the like basketball stadium because that's where it's happening. And. Um, there's no organization to this whatsoever. So they like they say like get there at eight and find your advisor and find the other people in your department. And our department, of course, like did not do that. Like we all sat like separately. Like there was a row of us that were English, but then like a few rows back there were like more English people, and <laughs> it just like we did not do it right. Um, How many were there and, total from English? There couldn't be that many. Oh, there right? were. There were quite a few. There were actually like ten or something. Oh, yeah. There were there were a few. Um, so yes, yeah, so that was kind of like all kind of messed up. 
I did find my advisor, thankfully. And then, so then we wait in line for an hour and a half before we even enter the gym um, so that they can kind of get us organized, like kind of get us in lines, etc. cetera. Uh, so, so far I've been awake since 6 a.m. I've been at the stadium since 8 and it's already like 10 a.m. And we haven't even started the actual like graduation. Uh, it lasted until noon. Okay. So it was long. Um, but so then, yeah, so we get there and you sit for a long time as like, there's a talk, there's like all of these, like, oh, we want to thank like the board. We want to thank all these people, blah, blah, blah. Um, then they like start calling out names. You hand, um, a guy a card, he reads your name. Then you <laughs> hand your hood to another guy I think it's the provost. And then he hands half of the hood back to your advisor and you stand in the middle of them. And then they attempt to get the hood over your head, but you're also <laughs> wearing a goofy hat. So you have to like both help like them help you. Yeah. You have to like hold your hat, but also like kneel down slightly. And it's just, it's mega awkward. <laughs> it's the most awkward thing. Um, and then you have to like stand for a photo and then you are ushered off stage and then you have to wait around for another hour and then you get to go home. <laughs> like, it was like a whole thing for this like five second like, oh, we put this, we draped this hood over you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and done. And done. But I did learn a cool fact, which is the, the hoods are like droopy because in the Middle Ages... Uh, you know, instructors, clerics had hoods, and if you gave a good lecture, your well-off students would put money in the, like, little flap of your hood. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Like, Wait, did, I know, anyone, I, did anyone put money in your hood? I kept waiting for it, and no one did. <laughs> I checked afterwards, and yeah, it did not happen. That's okay. Listen, um, you've got a whole career ahead of you for people to put money in that hood. Yeah, I'm waiting for it. I I, I need to one. earn back the yeah. the money. <laughs> like I, spent I need at on least fifteen hundred dollars. That reminds me of like so talking about like needing money or just like being being poor in general. You mean like aka our entire lives? <laughs> yes, I I texted you this, but I have not described the full like force of what happened the other day, which is I um. As being like a super amazing individual, I I went to the gym and did like 20 minutes on the the treadmill, and I was like mm -hmm. feeling like I was feeling really good, and so I was like I'm gonna go to the grocery store. I'm gonna get like an apple and like some healthy shit, um, and so it started pouring rain as I'm in the grocery store, and I had stupidly decided that my gym is like kind of like across the street from the grocery store kind of so I was like I'm not gonna move my car it's fine um and then the rain like just like you know like opened up and it went nuts um so anyway so I get my groceries and I'm like standing like in the entryway to the grocery store and I was like well I've just worked out like I'm gross and sweaty I was gonna take a shower at home anyways F it. I'll just, like, run through the, like, really pouring rain with my, like, two heavy grocery bags at this point. Oh, but no. I'm halfway there, and I see this, like, dollar bill floating along in the deluge. 
And I was like, oh, it's oh my God. <laughs> and so like with these two bags getting completely soaked, I just like run after it. Like a car honks at me. I'm still running. <laughs> you caused like a car accident in the pile. Yeah. <laughs> like visibility is very low at this point. Like there's like, there's like lightning <laughs> flashing around me. And I was like, I'm going to get that dollar. And I did. Like it took me a, a solid like maybe minute of running after it but i i did catch up to that dollar before it went down a drain <laughs> and yeah it was disgusting afterwards and it was worth it totally worth it i got a dollar a whole would you, dollar would you spend that dollar on oh probably like coffee the next day or something i don't even know you get um, a coffee they're like that's a dollar six and you're like God <laughs> damn it no <laughs> but also at that moment uh, because it was raining so hard, I couldn't tell if it was a dollar, if it was a $20 bill, oh, if it yeah, was a like, $100 uh, bill. So full of possibility. Yeah, so I had to go for it. And I'm I'm proud of myself that I did, even though it was just for a dollar. <laughs> that was like, so this was on like uh, My Fair Murder Minisode uh, maybe a week or two ago. But this woman wrote in talking about how when she was a kid, if they were in a parking lot her mom would make them like scan the ground for like coins and change. They just collect it, um, mm -hmm. which feels like something my family would do. I'm frankly shocked now to know that's a thing <laughs> that we didn't do. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> her mom spotted across the parking lot, like a wad of bills and was like, go get it, go, 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 like run and grab it. So this girl <laughs> goes and gets it. They get back in the car, they drive away. They unwrap the, <laughs> the wad of bills, and it's like a $20 bill wrapped around just bags of cocaine. <laughs> oh! <laughs> they're like, uh-oh. Uh <laughs> I would have like, been the like... The mom just flushed it down the toilet. They didn't go to the police or anything. Dang. I know. You know what that would have... Oh, man. Not that I would... Yeah. I would... It would just be sorely tempting to then, like, flip that cocaine and make profit off of that, too, mm -hmm. but... Then you're getting into like some, you know, breaking bad territory there. Yeah, that's yeah. like that's like some weeds bullshit. But yeah. you know what? Maybe that is like the millennial difference though. It's like our parents would never do that, but we are like <laughs> we understand that like life is a hustle. You know, you gotta yeah. make money where you can. You got a bag of cocaine, you better think you, twice you, about what yeah, you do with you it. You need to monetize that product. Yeah, so, exactly. Put it on Craigslist. <laughs> yeah. Nope, you gotta come. You gotta tap one of your graphic designer friends, uh, one of your branding <laughs> consultant friends. You gotta figure out some sort of like thing gimmick to make it uh, justified to be more expensive. Pug cocaine. Surreal. There we go. Yeah. Pug cocaine. I already yeah, got it. Pug, yeah. Pod cane. Whatever. Yeah. I said pug. Pug, right. pug cane. Pug cane. Yeah. Oh, is that what you just said? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. Let's be clear about the brand. It's a pug, which is everything. I'm just learning more and more that my, and I did not mean to do this. I purchased or obtained my dogs based on like cute factor and just like, yeah. I wanted like cuddly little, like stupid looking dogs, but, um, <laughs> achieved. every, yeah, achieved <laughs> definitely. But like in the last like two or three years, I've really, really noticed like how hardcore everything made for like a young woman has either a pug or a Boston Terrier on it. Like, it's just, like, exploded where, like, I own the two most, like, marketable dogs, basically. Right. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, so, like, yeah, you can't avoid it. I just, every time I go in the store, it's like, 
especially Target, man. Target loves the pug Boston combo. Actually, there, there, you can buy like a dress with a pug and a Boston Terrier like hugging on it now at Target. Just so you know, just in case you're in the market for it. Um, it's good to know. Yeah, I don't know how I got on that topic. Oh, it's time at cooking. I have to go to Target soon. I just ordered a lamp and I had it delivered to the store because I still don't know if I can accept packages in my apartment. (laughs) We don't have a doorman or like so. I don't know. I'm in New York. I had to have everything like shipped to work. So I do that now, but now I work so much further away. I don't want to have to like (laughs) carry Carry a lamp on a bus. (laughs) Like an hour commute. Oh man, when you get the lamp, are you gonna use Leon's line? Like I'm just lamping. That's my favorite line. So it's from um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, the latest uh, season. Oh, that's right. I was like, how do I know that? You told me about it. Just lamping. Larry's like, what are you doing? And Leon's like, just lamping. And he's like, what is lamping? And he's like, it's you know, like you're just like you're laying around. You're kind of functional still though. Like you're just you're like a lamp. Yeah, you're lamping. (laughs) I love like it. A friend of mine um, on Instagram said he was going glamping. Do you know what this is? Oh, it's glamour camping. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell me what comes to your mind when you hear that. Uh, my everyday existence because I live in a fucking travel oh. trailer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he said he's um, staying in like a lodge. And I was like, okay, that's just like staying in a lodge though, right? That's not camping. Yeah. But okay. yeah, it's like you have to draw the line like, somewhere. Yeah, it's like you you have like electronics available and you have like access to showers and you know like uh, like basically any amenities you would have in a hotel you have while camping and that's that's glamping. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a it's like a really nice tent with like a chandelier or something. <laughs> that's what comes to yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a version of it, right? That's like in Harry Potter when they're when they go to the like um World Quidditch Cup, like they all stay in. They all stay in a in a tent that's like glamping cuz it's got like Whoa, a kitchen. Whoa, did not in make it. that. Yeah, well, and like yeah. it's infused with magic. That I'm yeah. that helps. We have any to infuse magic our glamping tent? efforts with like money. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like any magic tent we could say pretty pretty confidently that it's a uh, it's, it's glamping. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. there you go. There's that wisdom. That connection. There's that Damn. PhD wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Dropping it. Yeah. Uh, mm, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to tell you about. Let's like talk about Princess Bride? Princess Bride. <laughs> oh, let's talk about William Goldman. Okay, yeah. So interesting fellow, right? <laughs> he was an interesting fellow. I wanna <laughs> I wanna just like start with <laughs> Um, one, one, a nugget from his life first before we dive into him. So, okay. Also, so, that sounds really strange to say that you're going to dive into him, Sam. That's like dive some. into a nugget of his life? That's, that's I guess some that's a mixed weird, metaphor. You can't really. <laughs> weird lingo going on there, which we will, we Listen, will not I'm explore not either. I'm your judgments. <laughs> I mean, I'm not judging. I'm just telling you that, yeah. I would dive in. If someone had chicken nuggets, I would dive into those nuggets. <laughs> gold nuggets i don't know i just ate a sandwich and i'm already ready to eat again yeah i'm hungry too <laughs> yeah so we're gonna jump to when when nuggets. Gold is an editor at oberlin's literary magazine <laughs> okay he would submit short stories to the magazine his own magazine anonymously um to see what the other editors thought about his work 
And he recalls <laughs> that the other editors, upon reading his submissions, remarked, quote, we cannot possibly publish this shit. Yes! <laughs> and I feel like that really gets into what ultimately is a body of work that he's written that is incredibly polarizing. So he's mm-hmm. born in 1931. Actually, like, not... He's probably, like, is not that much older than... Um, what's his name? Peter Beagle. They actually... Um, Peter Beagle's growing up in New York. Goldman's growing up in Chicago in a Jewish family. Um, he goes to Oberlin College, gets his bachelor's there, um, takes writing classes, really likes it. Um, when he joins the army in the 50s, though, he knows how to type. So he's sent to the Pentagon and works as a clerk um, until he's like discharged. And then he goes to Columbia University where he gets his MA. Um mm-hmm. Throughout all of this time, he's writing short stories, um, but they're not getting published. Um, I should also point out I'm getting all this from Wikipedia. I don't care. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so we can I mean, jump to. Isn't that where we get all of our info from? Like, I yeah, know. You know, it's... I think back in the day of like David Lynch and Judy Bloom, I would actually check out like biographies and stuff from the library. We ain't got and then time with, for like, that shit. Wes Craven, I tried to, like, mix it up with some other, like, web content. And now I kind of just go to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely, absolutely understand. And mm-hmm. that's good. Yeah. Okay, so, so... Despite the fact that these, like, short stories are not getting published, um, in 1956, he writes, um, I guess, his first novel called The Temple of Gold in less than three weeks. Um, with this novel, he not only gets an agent to represent him, but he gets it published through um, Dopf. So, <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. Good and it job. doesn't say how well it sold, but it says it sold well enough that it sort of launches his career. So naturally, he takes a year off. <laughs> and then he writes, do. I know, I was like, oh. Um, then he writes um, a second novel in just a little over a week. And what? then this he writes insane. a third. Isn't that insane? So basically, he gets to like just hang out for 51 weeks of each year. And then he's like, all right, novel week. Do, 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 do. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like another what is one that in the bullshit? can. I know. Ah. Although you have talked about a very similar process personally. Well, when yeah, that's true. <laughs> but when I emerge from that shit, it is ugly. It is the like grossest creature you will ever encounter. <laughs> <ever gowner. laughs> All right, so he's on a novel yeah. three at this now point, he's right? Three novels. Third one's called Soldier in the Rain. It gets adapted, although he has no involvement in the screenplay. And he still doesn't turn to screenwriting. Next, he gets into theater work and he starts um, writing plays, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then it's not until the 60s, like mid-60s, that he starts dabbling in screenwriting. So Cliff Mm -hmm. Robertson hires him to adapt Flowers for Algernon. Mm -hmm. And then he like pauses on that to adapt um, this or to tinker, essentially script doctor, um, this spy spoof movie called Masquerade. Um, ultimately, like he didn't become the the writer for the Flowers for Algernon screenplay. Um, that movie, that adaptation becomes Charlie, and it's written by um, someone named Sterling Siliphant. Um, wow, but what this, a name! I know, what right? a name. <laughs> You're like he went to private school, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's really from there that he gets into um, writing screenplays. Um, he's still writing some novels. He's teaching at Princeton at the time. Um, but he writes his first original screenplay, which you may have heard of, called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and yep. unlike his novels, he researched this for eight years. So it was like a serious investment. 
Um, but which is insane because it's usually like the process is flipped where like yeah exactly the novel is this tortured thing that you research diligently and it you know takes forever to come out and Um, no one reads it (laughs) yeah and the screenplay is like do 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 yeah you know but yeah Williamson locked himself in a hotel room for three days and wrote scream right or uh, Paul Thomas Anderson does that sometimes where he's just like yeah we'll just like go to his friend's cabin. And just come up with, like, the main idea for something and, like, write most of it in a week. Yeah. Ugh. Who are these people? We need to do I, this. I think we I both know. have novels and screenplays on us. Yeah. We just okay. got to dive into them. Yep. We need to find mm. a friend with a cabin. <laughs> oh, we need <laughs> rich friends. And we're going to go glamping. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, um, Sam. You and so- I going glamping oh. would be, like... <laughs> a disaster. It would be the, like, mid-episode in a very poorly written uh, sitcom, you know, yep. where it's, like, boop, 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 boop. And just, like, all of these, like, really... Like, neither of us would know how to, like, start a fire. Or nope. we would accidentally start a fire, but it would be the wrong kind. <laughs> yeah, the whole time we'd be complaining about how much we paid and how the campsite doesn't look anything like the pictures... And then mm-hmm. we'd find out, like, as we're getting our car and driving away, that we were at the wrong campsite the whole time or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. This is – and while we're glamping at our writer's retreat, we end up writing that experience. <laughs> like, yep. we just, like, reproduce it. <laughs> okay. Perfect. All right. So we're set. Yep. Um. <laughs> and here's why we should do this, because – he sells this script for $400,000. At the time, the highest price that's ever been paid for an original screenplay. Um, and it, it, it pans out because it's a huge critical success, right? It makes so much money. It earns Goldman um, an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And so he's like hot stuff at this point. Yeah. So he does a bunch of other like adaptations. He writes some more scripts. None of them are really big until he writes The Princess Bride in 1973. Mm-hmm. Um he also goes on to write the screenplay, but it's not made for, um, I guess, over 15 years or 14 years, right? 87. So we'll put a pin in that and come back to it. In the meantime, he writes uh, Marathon Man. <laughs> yes, I which I recently watched. I recently so watched, watched this movie and it's it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see um, Dustin Hoffman's young little tight booty in that movie, though. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> He's got one of those booties that has the, like, it, like, sucks in on the side. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it has, like, it's, like, he's so like lean that his butt. Dimples? Yeah, like, well, like, on the side of each butt cheek, yeah, instead yeah, of just right. being round. Um, it, like, it's, like, concave. <laughs> yeah, like, you could put, like, some guacamole in it if he's, like, laying on his side, basically. <laughs> and... <laughs> You've already Anyways. started uh, cataloging some ideas. <laughs> yes. I, I wrote them to Dustin Hoffman, but he's like, my butt doesn't look like that anymore. And You're like, all was... I got back was a cease and desist. <laughs> <laughs> or um, no, um, what's it called? <laughs> Damn it. A restraining, a restraining order? order. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I have whatever. many of those. But, I okay, this is them. where things get interesting. He also does screenplay for Stepper Wives, but then he's hired to do the screenplay for All the President's Men. And here's another... Peter Beagle-ish sort of connection. Goldman writes the most famous line in the film, and that's the line, follow the money. This is mm-hmm. nowhere in any of Woodward and Bernstein's notes. It's not in their, any of their articles. This line comes from him. Um, he writes a screenplay 
and then the production decides not to go with it. That's what they say. Um, pum, 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 pum. I just lost my spot. Damn it. <laughs> follow the money. Follow Sam, the money. Sam, follow the money. I'm following. <laughs> okay, so I, I forget who this is. Um, but the production, whoever's overseeing the movie says they definitively did not use... Um, Goldman's script when writing this movie. Um, so like Michael Feeney Callan in his Robert Redford biography, for instance, says this. Um, and then it's excerpted in a story in Vanity Fair that basically just publicly says that William Goldman is not to be credited with all the presence men. Um, but um, Vanity Fair then conducts a thorough investigation of the screenplay's many drafts and they look at Goldman's notes and they actually conclude that he's essentially the sole author of mm. the screenplay. And so there's this long sort of, I don't know, my understanding then is that there's this sort of um, tempestuous history about who is to be attributed credit for that movie. Yeah, because it sounds like he did a shit ton of work on it and yeah. deserves props. But then around this point, like he starts, he writes a ton of screenplays, none of them get picked up. He's less in demand. He's doing some script doctoring, but his, his star has definitely fallen. Um, and then it's not until the mid 80s that he starts to become like this Hollywood darling again. Um, and that's when he adapts uh, two of his own novels, Heat um, in 1986 and then The Princess Bride in 1987. Um, yay! Yay! And he actually goes on to do a lot of work for Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner's the director of Princess Bride. He writes, he adapts Stephen King's novel Misery. He also um, does some script doctoring for like A Few Good Men. And so. Um, a lot of his later career, like, intersects in a bunch of ways with Rob Reiner. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's not really doing too much. <laughs> yeah. So we'll I see. I mean, I read that, like, I think it was one of his, him and his real voice, not in his fake authorial voice in Princess Bride, because we need to talk about the frame of that in a yeah, second. Yeah, right. Um, but, so I read this either of him or from him, that he, like, he lives in a hotel in New York. He lives, he's rich enough to just hang out in a hotel his entire life and get room service and, like, not clean. Like, he lives in a hotel, which That's is insane. crazy to me. Um, I think, like, I first got that kind of, like, wow to, like, even, like, stay in a hotel for an extended period of time. Yeah. Like, that is just, like, the mark of being rich, like, in Pretty Woman, you know, when, <laughs> like, Richard Greer just, like, kind of lives in that hotel. You're like, Damn. He's got some dough, you know? Damn. So Yeah. William Goldman, I think, is doing all right. I think he's he's okay. Do you think he's also falling in love with sex workers routinely? Oh, probably. I bet yeah. he is. I mean, just from like the tone of his writing. He's just crafting Cinderella stories wherever he goes. Oh, the tone? Okay. <laughs> his his gender politics, at least in the book, are uh, not great. Not <laughs> like, great. Nor say, are like, his racial politics. Misogynist. <laughs> Well, and there are, um, or there are also some racist statements. Yeah, in this you're right. Book. I mean, but it is interesting to think about how the novel's written in 1973, and then he adapts it as into a film in 1986, and that he actually does like some corrective work over that decade, which is at least mm -hmm. like encouraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So let's. Do you want to like dive yeah, in? Just take it away. <laughs> just get into that nugget. Let's get into this nugs. <laughs> All up in this nugs. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, Princess Bride, the novel, is what we're talking about, right? And it has this really kind of frame-within-a-frame type of structure, right? So 
um, basically, Goldman is writing as a kind of um, fictional version of himself. Uh, so he, you know, invents like a wife who's a psychiatrist and he invents a son named Jason. In mm-hmm. real life, Goldman has two daughters and his wife was not a psychiatrist. So um, it's clearly yeah. fake. And and yet, like, these are kind of like the kind of outside forces on the narrator who is basically abridging um, this supposed classic by Morgenstern, right? This really long, um, very, very detailed uh, fantasy slash history slash epic uh, called The Princess Bride, right? So what Goldman is purporting to do is taking the good bits, right? And actually the my title says um, the good parts version, uh, and oh, so at really? first, yeah, at first, like, so, uh, we talked about this last week, but I've not read this book. I've not like, actually, I don't really know what this book is about yet. You hadn't seen and the movie so either. I had not seen the movie. And so when In I fact, saw you want to the... tell, <laughs> tell us what you thought the movie was. Oh yeah. Um, so just because of the the actor, what's his name? Carrie. What's his last name? I know. I have no idea. Elwes. I have no idea Elves? how to say his name. Okay, so the very handsome actor from the eighties. Um, anyways, he's also in Robin Hood Men in Tights, and so in my head, I just conflated those two movies, and I've always thought that I've seen <laughs> Princess Bride. I've always thought that. Uh, turns out I have not seen it at all, and um, it was so funny because we were. Uh, Ryan and I were at, we were in Charlotte at a theater waiting for a show to start. And I, you know, like I had just kind of recently had this realization that I had never seen Princess Bride and I was harboring like some shame about it. Uh, And I was like, Ryan, have you seen Princess Bride? And he was like, oh yeah, definitely. There's this girl and she's got like fuzzy hair and glasses and she turns out she's a princess and she gets this makeover (laughs) and she's really hot. And I was like, that is, that is Princess Diaries, my friend. So at least I wasn't that far. No, this is of your your shared pop cultural radar. Yes. 100%. Also, this was great, Sam. So we were retelling this story at our party. And so I was like, yeah. And then Ryan said, she has fuzzy hair and glasses, but she ends up hot later. And one of our friends was like, Harry Potter? That's <laughs> like no, <laughs> Princess Diaries, which is supposed to be Princess Bride. So like the 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 cultural references just got so embedded and it got like it became this big mass of things. Okay, so anyways, that's all to say that I had not seen the movie and I had not read the book, obviously. And so when I got, because I have the like the physical copy. And when I opened it and it said the good parts version abridged by William Goldman, I was like, oh shit, I hope I got the right one. You know, I hope Were I you got briefly like, like the this one. is just a collection of sex scenes. <laughs> yeah, I, well, parts. like I was like, <laughs> what was the Judy Bloom book where that the neighbor was like, do you remember? Oh, this? it was the, the one with the boy. What was the boy one? It's like, then again, um, maybe I won't. Or was it end yes, of the world? Yes, yes. Yeah, no, it was where he's like, I just got the like nasty parts out. Yeah. <laughs> um,. <laughs> The good bits. So, yeah, I I was a little worried at first starting this because I was like, oh, shit, I got the wrong one. But that's part of it. That's part of the joke because what Goldman is doing is he's playing this massive kind of meta joke on, on readers that 
you know, like, because I'm coming to it so late, I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite get how funny it was, but it is funny. The idea that this fake William Goldman is adapting or abridging this fake manuscript. By that, S. Or Morgan book. Stern. Yes. That, um, I don't know, like that that allows him to do really interesting things because what he does is he has these, you know, kind of these front, um, narratives of him speaking in, um, in his own words, William Goldman. Uh, but then he's allowed to like interject in the supposed Morganston version and say like, I don't agree with this scene or like, I looked this up and this is not anachronistic and all of yeah. this stuff. It's so fabulous. Like multiple factors at play. So there is this, fictional like larger narrative that's being adapted s morgan stern's like mammoth text and then there is like the editor character of william goldman making both editor's notes and then personal sort of reactionary notes about like why mm -hmm. he did certain things he did or what he thinks about it yeah and then there's also him commenting on what it's like to t tell his what it was like to be read the story no no to read the story to his son yeah, but he also, like, part of the backstory is that he had the story read to him by his father. Right. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, so there's, like, multiple authors that play them. There's, like, Morgan Stern, Goldman, and then his father reading it to him and deciding what parts to read to him as well. And so he's also, like, like dealing, making sense of the occasional dissonance between the text that he's reading and adapting versus the version of it that was read to him. And so mm -hmm. what's interesting to me about that, especially given the fact that this is an author who's working in so many mediums and is frequently adapting other people's work and his own works, is that this is a novel that's like really obsessed with adaptation and reception about thinking yeah. through like what it is to take something that's not accessible and make it successful and accessible to as many people as possible, right? There's a sort of right. like populist impulse to this, right? Even saying like, I'm just taking the good parts. That's saying like, this is not for scholars or historians, it's just for people who want a good story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, he very cleverly kind of uh, hints at, you know, his involvement with, or I guess like the network of other writers that, you know, he's connected with, the other editors. So one thing that's also great about this is how like down or like how um, snarky Goldman is about the like the publishing biz as well, yeah. right? So that adds, I think, you know, really interesting kind of insider layer to it. Where he's like, I don't want to give you the impression. He says this at, at um, a certain aside. I don't want to give you the impression that any American publishing companies are good. They're not. They all like suck, you know, <laughs> but what you should do and this and he actually did this and people responded to this. He claimed to have written a chapter called Buttercup's Baby. This is after the oh, novel. Yeah, yeah. This is after all of that. And he put in the Princess Bride. If you want this chapter, there's I some legal that. issues. Write to this particular publisher. I think it was Hackett at the time. I'm not, I can't quite remember, but write to them. Here's the address. Here it is. So, you know, like, like, you know, like, let's establish that this is, you know, a and very real company. He makes a guarantee on their end, like, don't include return postage. They will pay the postage to mail you, you know, the yeah. that missing chapter. And so thousands of people did, like thousands of people actually did. And what they got back was this like kind of letter that said, you know, because of legal issues, we cannot actually, <laughs> you know, send you this chapter. And it was like this whole thing. But now you can actually read it, um, the, the chapter either 
in like my book has the chapter or you can read it online as well so oh that's awesome mm-hmm. yeah that was like delightful <laughs> i i have to say too like the other thing that occurred to me that i thought was really funny is that like it's funny to read this in like the hbo serial television like game of thrones era because the implicit argument about like adapting morgenstern for like it's good parts only is that the nature of mainstream storytelling would not allow for a dense fantasy epic to exist Mm. and be popular right that it's Mm -hmm. our job or it's his job to make this accessible to be this like translator whereas now you know in 2018 we have um, not only an appetite and a hunger for like dense fantasy on a on a mainstream level, but we also have channels for it. And it's not the movie theater; it's now television. And so, right. there's something about um, what we would do, how we would adapt or bring to screen S. Morgenstern now versus then. That's interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, it's something that we're we're definitely like. I mean, it's not just Game of Thrones, but it shows like Outlander or Vikings or Poldark or all of those kind of like historic, like loosely historical based, like, you know, epics pretty much that, um, yeah, we can now kind of like really savor them in certain ways, I guess is the, yeah. the right idea. Like, Well, they just announced where... that like every major premium cable channel and every streaming service is making huge bets on a, a like a very expensive fantasy series right now and so next year we're going to have just like a series of competing fantasy novels or adaptations. yes yeah <laughs> i'm so happy about that i'm i'm absolutely okay with that <laughs> yeah dense fantasy is back <laughs> yeah which makes our podcast all the more relevant because we're Prescient talking about even <laughs> yes the kind of the forefathers, the the babies, the babies of the genre that mm-hmm. are, you know, then kind of mold into future huge versions. So, um, okay, so yeah, let's talk about then the, what like the this story novel. Itself. Yeah, what this novel is. So we've got we've got Goldman setting us up for. Um, oh, I love this though. I we have to say what how his dad describes it to him. Because it's the cutest thing. Yeah. Um, oh, my goodness. I, I think I might have lost it. Um, see, like, I'm trying to, like, go through all of the kind of, like, prefatory material where it's like, okay, there's Willie. His, okay, here it is. So Willie is Goldman's um, fictional grandson who kind of encourages him to continue working on this. But when... When Goldman is a child, he gets pneumonia, he's sick, and his father, who's an immigrant, who can't, um, you know, like, he can't speak perfect English, and he kind of struggles with reading, his father decides to read him Morganston's um, work, but his father obviously cuts out parts of it. And um, the young Goldman is skeptical about this book, and he says, has it got any sports in it? And the father responds, fencing, fighting torture, poison, true love, hate, revenge, giants, hunters, bad men, good men, beautifulest ladies, snakes, spiders, beasts of all natures and descriptions, pain, death, brave men, coward men, strongest men, chases, escapes, lies, truths, passion, miracles. I, and like, 
I don't know, just those, you know, that punctuated, that staccato, like, you know, here are the things that are in this fantasy novel laid out that way or so, like, I just thought that was so brilliant because you're like, yes, like, that's, you know, if I want, like, if I'm searching, you know, for a book to read, those are the keywords, you know, or those are yeah, some right. of the keywords you might use, but then to have them all clustered together, um, yeah, I don't know, it's just like this perfect setup to the novel itself because he does deliver it does have all of these things right it has beautifulest ladies it has strongest men etc it's it's such a good setup i think that yeah that we're well, already like to the ladies part too because the th one thing that we're kind of circling around is the fact that Tim Morgan Stern, Goldman, Goldman's father, Goldman's like grandson um and of course the fact that these are all Goldman we have like a bunch of <laughs> men um opening a story about buttercup prince uh soon to be yes. princess buttercup um but at first just buttercup right just a yeah. simple girl her name is buttercup and we learn a couple things about her first she is dumb that she <laughs> yeah. names her donkey donkey um and that she horse's horse oh horse's horse is that it yeah. i messed it up <laughs> oh well yeah <laughs> Well, she but, part of that's important because she loves to ride. That's like that's her, right. That's, that's her right. main thing. She loves to horse, ride her horse. horse. <laughs> and the other thing is that we learn uh, as a, a, essentially like there. The logic is that the way to understand Buttercup as a female character is to place her along a spectrum of all the beautiful women in the world, and think mm -hmm. about where she falls in that ranking because that's going to be the best way to characterize her. And we find out she's not even in the top twenty yet. Um, right, so but first she we will take get a minute there. To, yeah, and that's how we know she's someone worth keeping an eye on, I guess. And we learn about the top five most beautiful women. And what's interesting about it is, in one sense, they play out like fairy tales about vanity, right? Where basically, as each woman becomes the most beautiful woman, she becomes aware of it and this knowledge that she's the most beautiful and that she has to maintain it, that it will fade, etc. This ultimately like undo, undoes each of them. Mm -hmm. But it's weird because it's this sort of like fable-ish moral parable in which in some ways like we're supposed to be criticizing the women for being so vain. And yet that's like the only method of understanding a woman that this novel gives us. And so like off like from the jump, there's this like very strange sort of like framing of Buttercup and what she's going to really represent in the novel. Yeah, uh, she certainly I mean like most kind of fairy tale or fantasy novels she's this object that men you know kind of continually take or you know like take charge of or demand or claim in certain ways and you know like we get like a much more interesting version of that later with like cersei or something like that yeah <laughs> right but, but this like, is like uh, meg yeah you know, wrinkle in time yeah exactly but this is like she's she's definitely positioned and i think somewhat ironically or somewhat humorously as this kind of um, really kind of naive, very kind of empty-headed um, just object that, I mean, so she eventually gets, like, spotted by the Count, um, Count Rugen, who, you know, just, like, gazes upon her and keeps staring at her, and then he is reminded later when Prince Humperdinck needs a wife and he wants somebody beautiful but common he's like oh i i've got the perfect girl in mind because i stared at her <laughs> like a lot <laughs> yeah and have i got the girl he, for you 
yeah, it's, so I think you're absolutely right. There's this, it's already setting up like a, a pretty vapid kind of, yeah, just a, a, a vapid character that, I don't know, like maybe you, you'll disagree, but I honestly, I didn't have as much investment in Buttercup or even, um, in Wesley as I did in like the, the, the criminals, right? Like Inigo and Fezzik are way more interesting to me as oh my characters God. than, I, than Especially they are. in the movie. I just love them. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Hilarious. Like Carrie always isn't, you can tell that he was cast because he is the spitting image of, um, of, of what's his name? Oh my God. Wesley? Errol, Errol Flynn. Oh, Errol Flynn. Yes. I was going to say yeah. Errol Morris. And I was like, that is the documentarian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Red, like he looks just like him. You can see him trying to really like summon that swashbuckling attitude. And mm-hmm. Robin Wright is great, and she she looks just impossibly young. It's so funny just seeing her now so much. Like cause she's yeah. still like she has even more work now, I think, than she did then. So she's so mm-hmm. ubiquitous. Um, it's so funny to see her so young. But um, and they're great. There's nothing wrong with them. But I think you're right. Like, um, Mandy Potemkin has like just so much charisma that he really steals the movie for me. Yeah, well, I think in the novel, too, uh, like, I was like, oh, we got to read more about Buttercup. And, like, I'm glad that, that Goldman is pretending to excise, like, her royalty training, etc. But then, I mean, like, I got... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, then I got, like, really excited whenever it was, like, and then Inigo, like, back to Inigo or back to Fezzik, you know, that's... That, for me, was the meat of the novel, uh, because, like, they really are just much more three-dimensional, I think, than... And I think that's part of Goldman's project, right, is to show, like, yes, every, you know, every fantasy has, um, uh, you know, like, a princess and a hero. And, in fact, I think that's that's punctuated by, like, when um, his father is reading to him, there's this moment where Buttercup has been um, kidnapped and she jumps into this uh, shark-infested waters to try to escape. Mm-hmm. And the father interrupts and says, she does not get eaten by sharks at this time. And his son, Goldman, is like, what, what, what? And he's like, I just, I noticed you getting, like, too wrapped up in it. She does not get eaten by sharks at this time. And this is necessary kind of, like, uh, just insertion because, I don't know, because it's like, you... This don't worry. This is going to fulfill the fairy tale genre. This is going to fulfill the conventions to such an extent that don't worry. You shouldn't. You shouldn't worry about Buttercup. She's gonna be okay. Um, but what's more interesting is you know how like um, Vizzini is reacting to her jumping into the the shark infested waters. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I felt like I just ranted for a while. No, that's <laughs> apologies. Great. I mean, the other thing that strikes me too as you bring this up is that. When we jump to like Fezzik or Inigo, we get this like psychological backstory about like what motivates them and what drives them and what their passions are, and we never get that for Buttercup. Like she's much, right. uh, she's a much flatter character, and in fact, like the only close approximation we get to that is when she's fighting with Wesley in the ravine, and she's like, "Yeah, I'm not stupid, <laughs> you know, you keep talking to me like I'm stupid," and then he's like, "No, you're you're pretty stupid, but it's okay," <laughs> and like that's it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's let's back up just a little bit and say like just bare bones what happens. So, um, Buttercup realizes that she loves Wesley, who is a farm boy at her poor farm, right? And she realizes that she loves him only because she is threatened by the Countess looking at him, right? So she's like, oh wait, maybe farm boy 
does have these great qualities, or maybe he is something to value. And so she starts, um, you know, falling for him and she tells him, you know, I, I actually love you. And he, you know, returns that love. Right. So, uh, he decides to like go off to America to make some money so that they can be together. And apparently she hears a few years later that he has been killed by the dread pirate Roberts. So Wesley is supposedly dead. Um, and so then Buttercup uh, agrees to marry Prince Humperdinck, and his deal is that he's really into hunting. Uh, unbeknownst to us as readers until later, uh, he has paid um, Vizzini, uh, Fezzik, <laughs> and Inigo to kidnap Buttercup to start a war with the other country, Gilder. And, and that's, this is because, yeah, that's too, the premise. We learn even like this sort of weird that, uh, I mean, in one sense, Buttercup and, and um, Humperdinck are really a good fit because they are these sort of stunted characters to one extent, to one degree or another. Mm -hmm. Humperdinck is this like adolescent who does not want to grow up. Right. You know, he's someone um, who has like no interest in like women. He really just likes like hunting and like sort of like the war his desire for war is framed as just like an extension for his enjoyment of like playing yeah no he's he's mega into into hunting so much so that he has built a zoo of death what this is is a five level underground um collection of different deadly animals that like have kind of he's he's separated them by themes so there's like the floor of strength and there's got like a rhino in it that he could hunt or um the floor of speed he has like a hummingbird <laughs> yeah and he's like i'm gonna hunt this hummingbird hummingbird or whatever but like so he's so obsessed that he has this entire kind of contraption and what makes a him like the perfect pair for count rugen is count rugen is obsessed with the concept of pain kind of on an academic level, right? So he's the perfect companion for someone who likes to hunt because Rugen gets to develop and to observe different creatures in in excruciating pain. Yeah, and it's interesting too, as you're bringing up like the zoo and like the pain machines, like this like taxonomizing impulse really does extend throughout the novel. And it's also sort of like driving motivation or justification for the novel itself, since the novel is constantly reflecting on, you know, the necessary the minimum necessary elements of fantasy. Um, yeah. It's or a, it's even a, like Vicini's sort of like failed abilities to um, take something up, to like deconstruct and make sense of something, right? Um, that everyone's trying to do it on some level. Yeah. Um, no, I think that... Sorry, I was just... I, I kind of like just lost my train of thought. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> Because this novel has so much in it that there's it's it's it is a novel of, of copia. It's a it's a novel of excess and it's hard to uh, keep track of like all the different kind of literary things that Goldman is doing and, and like how to explain that I think is, is really what's what I'm struggling with here. It's like Well let's we like, can like burn through the plot is really like there's essentially like a part one and part two, I would say. So part one is you know, the lovers part ways, right? Where like Buttercup stays on the farm where Wesley goes to sail to America to make a fortune so that he can marry her and take care of her. 
she finds that he's been um, his ship was was pirate ransacked by pirates the dread pirate roberts killed him and so she says she vows to never love again she's heartbroken and so that actually puts her in a good position to marry humperdinck because humperdinck does not want to love her and so he's like listen mm-hmm. it's like a marriage convenience i have to do it you don't want to love anyone anyway let's do it so she says fine he we find out later has hired vicini and his gang um to kidnap her take her to do you remember the enemy nation uh, Gilder. Gilder, that's they're it. In, they're in Florin, but yeah. they, yeah. So Gilder is the enemy. Um, yeah, to take her there, kill her over there, so it looks like someone from Gilder had kidnapped her, they can start a war. As they kidnap her, take her to Gilder, they realize they're being pursued by a small ship. They're being pursued, actually, by a man in black, who one by one takes down the three members of the gang. So Inigo, then Inigo, the swordsman, Fezzik, the strong giant, and then finally Vicini. Um, the Sicilian. The, the Sicilian. <laughs> That's how that he's described. But so he's so good in the movie the too. Yeah, like, he's Wally the leader. Yeah, he's the brains. Like, kills it in the movies. So funny. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then Buttercup is pissed off about. I mean, she's glad to be t- saved from the gang, but she also doesn't know who this man in black is, and she just wants to go back to the kingdom where she's safe. Um, Mm -hmm. She finds out, of course, um, that it is actually Wesley who has come back and he's pissed at her because he hears that she's now marrying a king and he was like, what the fuck? Like you said, you love me and (laughs) I'm gone for a few years and now you're getting married. So you were dead. I thought you were dead. (laughs) (laughs) So they just like finally like work out their confusion. They're so happy to be together. And then, of course, Prince Humperdinck arrives and they have to. she has to go back with the king, and so she agrees to go back if they promise not to hurt Wesley. They they agree, although, of course, like Wesley knows, they're not going to hold the promise. So he is imprisoned right. in this torture chamber and tortured for 40 days while they have a long marriage celebration. And that's really part one. So we've met all the main characters, but they're all sort of scattered now at this point. Right. Um, so then, turns out, like, Vizzini uh, uh, dies, um, Wesley kind of outsmarts him by, <laughs> this was like one of the most nonsensical slash funny moments in the book is where he poisons two cups and, but he tells Vicini one of them has poison it, the other doesn't. So Vicini tries to like reason out which one has the poison. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it turns out that Wesley has just like developed an immunity to this poison. So it didn't matter which one he picked. Vicini is going to die. Okay. Did you, when you read that, feel like I need to start developing immunity to poison? (laughs) I don't know why, but then it just like weighed on me. Like, I really need to get on this. The other day I was bragging. I was bragging to my mom that I'm immune to poison ivy. Are you really? Yeah. Um, uh, so, and I was like, yeah, I can't get poison ivy. And she's like, you know, I was immune until I got pregnant. And yeah. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> just like oh, man. becoming Real pregnant. Sophie's just choice. Like... <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to give up for that baby? <laughs> I know. I really love rolling around in poison ivy right now. It's it's one of my hobbies. So, okay. Anyways, <laughs> what was I talking about? I have no idea. Oh, what were we talking about? oh okay. the poison. <laughs> Immunity. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. So, I also, like, just, I'm really hungry, and I tried to eat a peanut, and I realized that it, it was going to be too loud, and so it's just, like, in my mouth now. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm going to eat it real quick. Yeah, go for it. Okay. And swallowed peanut. Still hungry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> okay. 
But note to self, cannot eat peanuts during podcasts. Um, okay, so then we get uh, Inigo. Inigo is driven by, I think we should definitely lay this out, right? Inigo is driven by the need to avenge his father's death. His father was this great sword maker. He was approached by a man with six fingers on his right hand who said, I need the six finger. I need a, a sword for a six fingered man. Um, this challenge really taxed, um, Inigo's father, Domingo, but he made this beautiful sword, the six fingered sword. And then Count Rugen, who is the six fingered man, um, wasn't happy with it. And he killed him. He killed Domingo, Inigo's father. And he also scarred the young Domingo. So Domingo has been, or I'm sorry, the young Inigo. <laughs> so Inigo, Inigo this has been his entire life becoming a fencing master or a fencing wizard even, training with different people, different fencing techniques, um, so that he can eventually find the six-fingered man and get revenge. Okay, so Can we really quickly pause, deal. too, and say that one of the differences between the movie and this is that when um, Inigo recounts the story in the movie, he just says that... Um, it was a matter, it was a, it was a, his, his father's death was tied to a sort of like a bad faith in terms of like the, the pricing, right? This is a financial mm-hmm. dispute where Rudick said he was going to pay so much and then he didn't. Um, and so when his father refused to sell it for a tenth the price, he was killed. In the novel, it's, it's, the dilemma is like an aesthete's dilemma that his right. father is so, such a perfectionist and always driving to making the, the greatest possible, like most beautiful, most perfect weaponry that he feels like he's failed in his pursuit to make the best sword for the six-fingered man. And so he refuses to sell it on those grounds. Right. Well, no, actually, that's, yeah, actually what happens is he does make the sword perfect, but when Count Rugen gets there, he denigrates it and says it's Oh, that's okay. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's more like, you know, um, Dem- uh, Domingo achieved this kind of artistic perfection, but it was denigrated by someone so, like, yeah, lousy unappreciated. as the count. Yeah, unappreciated. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting to me that, like, when, when he's, the, the, I guess the mind space even, right, when he's writing the novel, that it's, um, it's uh, the, the, the central conflict is one of, like, one's ability to appreciate beauty. Um, right. And then when it comes to filmmaking, it's, like, one's ability to, like, it's a commerce-based dispute about one's um, faith mm-hmm. in those who are going to pay you for your services. And yeah, it is like a I really mean, interesting sort of, I don't know, way in which that might be tied even to like the Hollywood system and adapting and his own like history of, of trying to find and maintain work, like writing scripts and screenplays. Yeah, Again, it definitely pie cheapens in the sky, that, yeah. But it's fun to think about. No, no, I, I, I agree. Um, so, but when... Vizzini dies and uh, Inigo is knocked out by Wesley. He doesn't know what to do and neither does Fezzik the giant. Um, they, without a leader, they kind of, they figure like they, they don't have, like they, they need, you know, very clear direction as these kind of like hapless criminals, right? Like they're not innately criminals. They're just, they do it for money. And without Vizzini, they don't have, you know, a plan. So back in Florin, um, Fezzik, for some reason, joins the, like, police squad because he can make money that way. He's, you know, a giant. Um, and Inigo just, like, is drinking himself, um, silly because they don't have a plan. They don't have a clear direction anymore. Well, Fezzik and Inigo kind of reunite, and Fezzik says, hey, guess what? I found the six-fingered man, the man you've been wanting to kill. 
uh, your entire life, basically. And Inigo's like, great, where is he? And Fezzik's like, he's in the castle, which is heavily guarded, and it's near impossible to get in. And Inigo's like, we need somebody who can plan, but Vecini's dead, let's find the man in black. And it takes kind of this, like, incredible amount of reasoning to, to determine that actually the person who can help them reason <laughs> is the man in black, who is probably located in the zoo of death, who is pro you know, so it's like this um, kind of interesting fainting of, of logical reasoning to get to somebody who can then plan out their their kind of strategy for charging the castle, getting Count Rugen, etc. Right. And at this point, too, um, the the sort of other plot that's going on that's running parallel is that Buttercup finally tells Humperdinck that, like, she does not want to be with him. She wants to be released from their um, engagement and marriage eventually um, so that she can be with Wesley. Now that she knows he's alive, she can only be with him. So he says, great, I'll send out ships, my four fastest ships to go hunt him down and tell him he can come. If he comes back, um, you can be reunited with him. If not, you can't. Um, and of course, he doesn't send out the me. ships. Yeah. yeah. Of course, yeah. he doesn't send out the ships because he knows where um, Wesley is. Um, he's in the torture chamber. And so he goes and has him killed. Right. With the machine, which mm -hmm. is the, the thing that the Count has invented that basically sucks years of your life away from you somehow. And so it's this it's really complex torture device. And um, the Count has been using it on Wesley for, for like, many, many nights, but um, Humperdinck is so upset by Buttercup's, like, you'll never be like Wesley, like, he's way better than you are, that he just goes and, and has Wesley killed. So now we've got a dead man, and we've got Inigo and Fezzik searching after the dead man, and they find him. They finally, like, they get through the zoo of death um, to the fifth level where Wesley is, and he is dead. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, um, again, Goldman interrupts as a child as himself as a child and is like what like how this doesn't make any sense like how can the hero die and the father's like just hold on we'll we'll read it again another night and so he has to like go through this torturous night where he's thinking about like you know who's gonna avenge wesley now etc um but what they do instead which is so funny and probably one of the funniest moments in the movie as well is they take him to Miracle Max. They take Wesley's body to Miracle Max, who can revivify Wesley through this kind of like very kind of silly, like how much money you got, like how mm -hmm. long do you need him alive kind of thing. Um, but he's ultimately convinced to bring him back because Wesley, um, like his kind of like ghostly or like they stick a bellows in him and ask him why he wants to come back. <laughs> and he says true love. And so, yeah. The Miracle Max agrees to do it. And he's further incentivized by the fact that this guy wants to um, bring unhappiness to Prince Humperdinck. Prince Humperdinck fired Max. So <laughs> he's yeah. also like invested in, in seeing that through as well. Right. Okay. So now we're at the, like the, pretty much the end, right? So Wesley, Inigo, Fezzik make their way to the castle. Um, Inigo finds the Count and he says his famous lines. Do you want to say them, Sam? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do want to say it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was, I used to Indigo and I was thinking Wesley. And I was like, I don't know the To the Pain speech. <laughs> <laughs> no, Indigo. His, My name is Inigo Montoya. 
you killed my father, prepare to die. Yes! And it is the most thrilling moment. It's like so it's good. so satisfying. But then what is hilarious is that you think like, okay, sword fight, now, go. But instead yeah, the count's it... like, whoop, <laughs> and runs, runs away. away. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, like this bumbling way that the novels kind of like played with conventions anyways. Um, so Wesley finds Buttercup. They're like, oh, you know, we're reunited. <laughs> I don't know why I did it like that. Oh, we're reunited. Oh. Um, but they're reunited, blah, blah, blah. Humperdinck is, is overcome. Um, Inigo kills the Count. Fezzik has found four horses for them to escape. They jump out the window. Fezzik catches them, and they, they get away. And he's and found a family. The that's the other big thing. So his backstory yeah. in the novel is that he when his parents learn that he has gigantism, they really force him to become a violent fighter because I think they can really capitalize on this where he is this very gentle person who doesn't like hurting other people and he's forced into this life and so that he finally like escapes and runs away um, and sort of like goes on this long narrative starting with the beginning of the novel through to the end where he sort of has this reconstituted family and he can just be this gentle loving person again. Right, and his favorite hobby is rhyming. I love so, this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Inigo will be like, it's time, and Fezzik will be like, um, I'm fine, you know, and so it's it's really cute. It's so good. Yeah, I'm ashamed that my rhyme that I came up with I know, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Why didn't I come up with, like, a clever one? I just also did, like, he likes to rhyme, time yeah fuck anyways i don't know what my brain man so when they did the end credits and they say who all the actors were when they got to the he's just called the albino i don't i actually have no idea if that's politically correct or not um i would veer on the side of caution and say it's not but (laughs) just in case Mm. but this is the guy who's overseeing the torture of wesley in the it's just a cave essentially in the movie um, but his name is Mel Smith and I saw Mel Smith and just, <laughs> I just received that as Mel Gibson. And for like, oh God. Days, I was like, how did I never know that was Mel Gibson <laughs> playing that role? And Mad I really, Max like, was the albino and Princess I know, it was Bride. not until this morning that I looked at the name again and was like, oh no, that's not Mel Gibson. Mel Smith is a very different <laughs> name. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, life would have been a lot more interesting had he also played that role, I think. Oh, yeah. Then there would have been, like, a Mel Gibson, Andre the Giant spinoff. And, I mean, just think about the merchandising possibilities alone. It would have been been incredible. A real buddy comedy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we should say, too, this goes back to the Andre the Giant documentary. Or we should say. We can say if we want to. um, That he, at this point, was so in so much pain that he couldn't actually like he was struggling to do the wrestling scene where he fights wesley and then there's a yeah. scene at the end where buttercup jumps out the window she he catches her and that he actually couldn't hold her at that point so they had to attach her to wires and essentially just like lower her into his arms to make it look as though he had yeah. caught her yeah i know i know did you did you read the little tidbit where Robin Wright, whenever she was cold on set, yes. Andre would put his hand over her head and it was like it like enfolded her entire head and it kept her warm. It's like wearing a that's, knit cap, right? Like yeah. that's how much of her head it, his hand took up. 
Yeah, that's so cute. Oh, Andre. I know. <laughs> so. Oh, man. So, yeah, this, I don't know. Like, this was definitely one of the more fun experiences I've had in, like, both. I Like, I guess what I should, what I'm trying to say is that both the movie and the novel are fantastic in certain yeah. ways. Like, yes, they have a few issues that don't, don't age well. So, like, there's a, there's a line early um, on where. Goldman is talking about his fictional son, Jason, and he compares him to, like, a sumo wrestler, and it gets, like, kind of weird, yep. you know, like, uh, um, so there are a few moments like that, but I, it's still got this really kind of playful, clever, mm -hmm. uh, just commentary on the writerly process that, I don't know, I just love, and I love that the movie kind of mirror, mirror uh, sorry, cannot talk anymore, kind of mimics that, um, with, like, you know, like Fred Savage is the little boy kind of that device. I don't know. Just it's yeah, great. and Columbo as his grandfather. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I did love that. Yeah, I really, yeah. I love this movie. I really enjoyed reading the book too. Um, so I'm glad we got to do it. Five stars. And it's interesting too, I guess, to think that you know we're we're making these huge leaps in time from book to book this season. But starting in the 50s, we have these very earnest sort of fantastical novels and it's really from just the 50s now to 73 or even to the 60s right when is last unicorn 68 i want to say right yeah um we are having these now just like reflexive takes on the fantasy genre itself so last yeah. unicorn is doing it in a very sort of like philosophical respectful way and now Prince <laughs> is doing it in a much like kind of sillier fun way right yeah yeah, that's a really good point. Like we're reaching kind of the the maturity of a genre that allows for spoofs of the genre and for commentary on the genre in certain ways. That that I think, yeah, this is the point where Goldman's like, okay, the sh the sharks do not eat her at this time, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, right. No, it's great, um, and I think too, like. I don't know. It'll be interesting to think about like the last remaining books in this season. So, I mean, Matilda won't apply as much. It is. No, I, maybe I take that back because Matilda, it's like, I was going to say no, because it's not really fantasy in the same way, but it is. It's about thinking about like applying like the fantastic to mundanity in a way. Um, yeah. So there's going to be, yeah, something reflexive to that as well. Never ending story, man. I'm like nervous about taking that one on. Because, like, I, it's gonna be... I watched that movie a few times as a kid, and I remember being like, I'm enjoying this, but I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and if anything, I have, like, less faith in myself yeah. now, so I, I don't know. I am in the same boat because I've, I've actually never seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen The that Luck one... Dragon? No, oh, I my don't gosh. know. Yeah. I missed out on a lot, man. Like, there were a lot of movies that were so central to like late 80s early 90s mm -hmm. kind of fantasy no, worlds that i just like i've never seen matilda see. well that is that's interesting that's gonna be we're gonna have a lot to talk about with that one <laughs> i'm so excited but i love that we can end the season by honoring denny devito yay who Which, was interesting tie-in yeah go oh we both know this fact yeah, no um, say it. uh so he was he was considered for the role of vizzini and I don't quite remember why. He just, like, he was too busy or something. Yeah, uh, he was no. shooting something else, yeah, um, to take it on. So, um, but there's our Danny DeVito tie-in. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, Yay. it would have been really fun to see him as Vizzini, but I did love, like, 
Wallace Shawn is so funny in the role. Yeah, he's he's great in the role. There's no there's no question. Also, so. can we just like say once and for all, ugh, like my dinner with Andre is not a good movie. I like Wallace Shawn a lot, but like I just cannot get behind that movie. Oh, I've not seen it. It's fine. I feel like in the late 90s, early 2000s, so when I was in high school and I was really in college and I was really, really into film studies, like that movie was just held up as like great American independent cinema. Um, and I remember watching it and like multiple times trying to watch that movie without falling asleep. It's just like oh. think of like before Sunrise, so those, those movies, but with like two yeah. middle-aged guys just sitting in a restaurant only discussing philosophy. <laughs> With, like, zero humor. <laughs> oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, don't okay. do it. No, no, I just no. want my, my opinion set down on record. <laughs> I'm, okay, I will I will avoid this in the future. Actually, I was kind of like... Um, so, I've, I've been looking for things to, to watch because I'm in kind of a rut. But then yeah. I, I have this sudden burst of things to watch now because I've decided to... Uh, thematize my class next semester on the apocalypse and so yes. I'm like, oh, I gotta watch all these apocalyptic movies now so kind of going back to two seasons ago and we were watching like Mad Max and stuff yeah. like that um watching a few more kind of modern um or even older ones so like Soylent Green is is on my list for yes, today actually. that one's so fun um, <laughs> so is this the so, evolution of your um environmental class yeah, yeah, I've decided that that was too boring and that it would be much more interesting <laughs> to talk about the destruction of the environment in certain totally. ways. Totally. So, you should yeah. go see the new Jurassic Park movie. Yeah, I'm I'm planning on doing that, definitely. Because that's, what's that's so interesting to me is like I I love like I really don't like seeing like big budget blockbuster movies. I usually find them kind of boring. That's I don't don't read into that. I'm not trying to come off as like too cool or anything like that. It's just true. But what is fun to watch though is to see like trends trickle across franchises, right? And like that yeah. is one instance in which like Jurassic Park now, first of all, it's gotten much more franchise minded in the last few years, but it's also now really trying to think about taking that turn towards like a more sort of serious take on its own mythology in the same way that like Marvel's trying to go a little darker and things like that. And it is oh, interesting yeah. that it's it's really leaning into it now being like this sort of like environmental sort of climate based apocalyptic <laughs> film, right? Where like the, right. the island is is like collapsing in on itself. Yeah, no, I'll probably we'll probably go see it in the drive-in because that's like that's the way I see these big epic movies. Like last night we saw uh, Deadpool and <laughs> Super really? Troopers 2 uh, <laughs> for $7, though, you know? So, like, That's amazing. I don't know. You just cannot beat that. And it's a way to not be mega bored because even in these, you know, like Infinity War and all these, like, really serious mega movies, um, I'm still in my car and I can just, like, look at my phone if I get bored. Yeah, you know? If you so choose, yeah. Yeah, I can just, like, pet my dog. It's not, <laughs> yeah. No one's looking at me. I can do whatever I want. It's cool. True I can fart as anonymity. much as I want. Yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. So yeah, but we we did do that last night. It was fun. It was good. So I'll probably see Jurassic World that way too. Nice. I'm gonna go. See and it'll it. be paired with something like completely random. Hmm. Hmm. I am excited to hear what it's paired with. Yeah. Cool. So, Katie, should we? Before we close out, should we talk about our obsessions? Yes. Why did we get awkward just now, though? Oh, I don't know. 
yeah, that was weird. Listen, <laughs> we're like the, the magic of a, a, Adobe Audition. I'm just going to like edit out some of those seconds of silence. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Thank goodness. Because there was this weird like, cool. Okay. This would be the moment Great. where, like, if you were at my house, we were suddenly you just would, avoid like, eye contact or something, and well, like, yeah. you would just like suddenly pretend like you need to go to the bathroom, <laughs> you know, like be like, I'm just gonna get out of the room for like two seconds, <laughs> and then come back and I'll like have a new story, you know, like yeah. Um, but we can't do I'm that. I'm actually just standing in your bathroom, being like, think, think of a story, think of a story, think, 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 think. What is the next? What oh. is the next? Yeah. Oh, I do that all the time. I freak out about that a lot. I'm like, I gotta go. I'll come back and I'll have like something to say. So I hate foam soap. You know, like that'll be like <laughs> what my next is the deal? Bits. Yeah. What's the deal with foam soap? <laughs> okay. Anyways. <laughs> so okay. So what are you obsessed with? Is it your environmental um, like apocalyptic uh, syllabus right now? That's. I mean, that is a thing that I'm doing. Yes, so probably that, yeah, because I started, like, I'm also, like, one of their assignments is that they can analyze a video game that's about the apocalypse that is more narrative-based, so I'm playing The Last of Us. I Um, love that game. Yeah, and I've I've never played it before, so it's it's really, really compelling. Um, But I don't know, like, I'm, post-graduation, I'm kind of, like, all over the place with my interests, like, I've started watching Atlanta, um, oh, that's so good. I Yeah, it's amazing. It's so good. I got an iPad Pro, so I've been, like, watching it on my little iPad while doing oh, work on my laptop. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm, I'm all high-tech right now. I've got, like, three. <laughs> like, I just like got a text, and it showed everywhere. up on three screens. Three screens <laughs> for the same text. Um, oh, but so cool. anyway, so, yeah, but I guess probably apocalyptic stuff right now is is forefront and i'm sure next week i will have a lot to say about all of the crazy end of the world scenarios that it, we i've should been do contemplating that as a season. we can just like turn your syllabus into a season just do like apocalyptic I mean, movies end of the world i'm i'm all about that i've done a lot of research on it already so all right we done. can do the road we Put could do world list. war z i am legend book of Eli. i mean the, the list is endless. Okay, we okay. could do it. Can I tell a you a story about Book of Eli? So I think that movie is terrible. <laughs> and Fair. My dad loves that movie. Like, <laughs> thinks it is one of the great American films. Okay. And has more than once brought it up in conversation. And so we got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to have to sit down and like watch this movie. And we watched it. And I was like, I don't understand how we watched the same movie and had such different reactions uh, <laughs> and it's just like yeah. it was like finishing the movie and we like speaking of awkwardness we just sat in like silence for a few seconds because i was <laughs> like eesh like oh boy like i don't uh. know i cannot think of a single positive thing to say right now <laughs> <laughs> oh no and he was like it's pilgrim's yeah. progress <laughs> don't you see and i was like well i mean i see that it is pilgrim's progress adapted into like an apocalyptic scenario but <laughs> i still don't think it's good Right. Like, I don't see why this happened, why this mm-hmm. was made. No, and to this day, every, like, he will bring it up more frequently than you think was possible. Um, and, yeah, I still just have no idea how to respond. No. Oh, that's sad. Yep, that awkwardness okay. just persists. Well, I mean, but it'll be fun that's to talk the about. backbone to father-son relationships, though, right? Is I mean, yeah, if be... not that, then something else, so. Right, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so Sam, what are you obsessed with? 
Oh my God. Okay. I can't use this as my session because I have in the past, but again, I just want to plug baskets. Like that show is uh... one of the most just beautiful, like just generous sort of human shows. Like I, I finished season three and so much of it is really spent just sort of like honoring this character of Christine Baskets. And I cannot tell you just how moving and involving it is. I think it's just like yeah. this gorgeous show. Um, and I come away with just like, <laughs> this is like hope for people, I guess. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I just love it. And I love that, you know, it, it's still really funny. It's still really absurdist, but I just never, I guess I never really knew Zach Galifianakis comedy beyond like The Hangover. And I just right. like to think that like, he's made this like incredible show. It just kind of blows my mind. No, Although you I think could he's say, like, I remember seeing the pilot of Baskets and really thinking, coming away, being like, oh, that was one long, like, apologia for The Hangover, like, about the realities of, like, artistic compromise. <laughs> like, I'm oh, convinced right. that, like, that was meant to be a very clear explanation of why <laughs> I am most famous for The Hangover. But, mm-hmm. so I can't do that. But um, I've been thrilled to have, like, so much time to read again. Really, like, over the last year, I've read maybe a handful of books just because... You know, you're just like hustling, trying to figure out the career stuff. Um, and now I have some dedicated downtime where I can get through novels again. So I read, um, uh, I, I'm going to butcher her name, unfortunately, but it's um, Elif um, Batuman's um, The Idiot that came out a couple years ago. It's really great. Okay. Um, it's really funny, like laugh out loud funny at times, like dry novel about this. Um uh, protagonist is the daughter of Turkish immigrants. She's uh, in New Jersey and gets accepted to Harvard. And it's about her sort of first long year at Harvard and her like, quote unquote, like education in, you know, academic subjects and in life as she like goes through a couple semesters, kind of fall, falls in love for the first time as she does like her first sort of study abroad teaching English or failing to teach English in like a Hungarian town, rural town. And it's really good. So I'm gonna recommend that as my obsession. Is it is it, does it kind of like um, refer back to Dostoevsky's The Idiot as well, or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's unrelated like Dost- or Dostoevsky. Okay, so I've never read The Idiot, so I don't totally know how it relates, and I didn't bother to Wikipedia. Um, but <laughs> okay. um, they have their like interspersed through the novel are like maybe like three or four instances where people are discussing Dostoevsky, um, and she's mm. explicitly cites the idiot like way early on in the book, and so it is meant to be reflexive in that way. What was struck okay. me though is that like in some ways though the novel for me like made clear how we understand like the novel of manners continuing today. Like in some ways, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I definitely felt that. Russian Eastern European influence, but there's also like a Henry James ish quality to it as well. Um, yeah, you should read some Ishiguro next. That would be. I like, read a lot of Ishiguro. Yeah, so good. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, no, Maybe that's actually a really good point. And yeah, his in a different way because his are so heavy and serious. <laughs> where mm-hmm. yeah, but it is all about like how like people interact or or like the waiter consequence of like adopting certain. Or accepting certain customs or ways of of being around others. Like the certain customs that enable us to be together also inevitably become these like masks that keep us from fully like being able to express who we are to one another or something. Right. Yeah. Like my my like slow silence right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Boom. Point proven, motherfucker. Boop, boop. Uh, <laughs> Okay, well, 
<laughs> All right, I think we're done here, right? I think, like, we're, I think we've we've done our our job. We've t- we've tapped our our mental resources for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Billy Zane, I hope you're zaned up in your zany heaven, yeah, or zany hell, you, wherever you, you are. Know, strive to avenge your father's death. I really, I I wish you success, but more, I, I wish you peace. Hello, my name is. Billy Zane, <laughs> you killed my it's father. Like you called his um his phone and got the voicemail. <laughs> Hello, my name is Billy, Billy Zane. Zane. <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to die. Uh, <laughs> awesome. All right. So, oh, should we say what's next week too? We oh yeah, next week. Thing. The never-ending story. Yay! I don't know. I don't know. I might. That's a very like conditional yay because I don't know what to expect oh, at all. It's, you're telling me this is a trepidatious yay on my part. I'm nervous. This is a. I'm a brand spanking new baby when it comes to this. So we'll see. <laughs> it should be should be interesting at least. That's a promise mm-hmm. we can make. Always will yeah. be. Not informative. Not brilliant. Doesn't flow well. Who knows? But it is interesting. That's what we offer. <laughs> Yay! Beautiful. All right. See you next week. Bye.